unteachable. You know, this is the word we use to describe those who have absolutely no desire to listen to the lessons of their teacher. Unteachable people are those who allow their foolish pride to keep them from becoming humble servants. And and while it's true that foolish pride has kept many Christians from becoming teachable believers, it's also true that many unteachable people, they have a hard time listening and learning because, well, they're just too impatient. They have no patience for lessons or, or maybe they're too insecure and they're worried that if they hear something, it might disagree with what their opinion already is and they don't want to risk losing their own opinions or, or, or some are just intolerant and they can't be taught anything because they will not tolerate anything that they disagree with. Well, whatever the reason for why we might be unteachable, it's crucial for every Christian to realize that those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been called to become his disciples. And that word disciple, just to be clear, the word disciple speaks of being a pupil or a student. Therefore, the born-again believer has been called to become the students of our Savior. With that being the case, I'd like to begin this study with a very simple question. And the question is this, am I a disciple of Jesus Christ who loves to learn from the Lord or have I become an unteachable believer? Now, before you rush to answer this question, it'll help us to know, first of all, that unteachable people are intellectually deceptive. Secondly, we'll learn that unteachable people are instinctively divisive. Thirdly, we'll learn that unteachable people are irrationally defensive. And then fourthly and finally, we'll learn that unteachable people are intentionally dismissive. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's dealing with the unteachable people who were there at the temple. And as you make your way to the 20th chapter of Luke's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that it was in our study last week. That's when we learned about the day when Christ Jesus entered the temple and he cleansed the temple for the second time. And according to the Lord, you know, the, uh, according to Luke, I should say, the Lord cleansed the temple by driving out the merchants and the money changers who had turned the temple into a den of thieves. Well, it's true that the people then began to attentively listen to him teach as he started teaching there in the temple. Well, it's also true that there were religious leaders who remained unteachable. Now, with all this in view, I want to pick up our study of Luke chapter 20. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here we learn that it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him saying, tell us by what authority are you doing these things or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, as we consider the way that these religious leaders there in Israel confronted Christ as he taught there in the temple of God, well, I should spend a second to point out here that the Greek word, which is rendered confronted there at the end of verse one, well, it was used of those who would suddenly show up and approach the person being confronted in a hostile manner. And what this means then is that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of Israel, they gathered together and and, and they went and confronted Christ Jesus suddenly and and with hostility as they questioned him about the, the things that he was teaching there at the temple. With that being the case, we should take a moment to ask, well, what was the message that they were so bummed out about? What was the message that they were taking issue with? 
with this question of mind, let's back up and take another look there, beginning at verse 1. Here we learn that it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him. Here in this verse, we learn that the lesson that Jesus was teaching there at the temple, it was the gospel message. He was teaching the gospel message. And just to be clear, the word gospel is translated from a Greek word, which could also be rendered glad tidings or good news. He's preaching the good news. This is the same Greek word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15, where he assures us that believers are saved when we embrace the gospel message of Jesus Christ. When a person embraces the good news about Jesus Christ, that's when we are saved. But rather than receiving the good news of God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, the religious leaders there in Israel, they rejected his message. Why? Well, because they were still teaching the law. They were teaching the old covenant, that a person must keep the law perfectly in order to be right with God. And so there was a conflict there. They didn't like hearing this good news message. So they confronted Jesus. But it wasn't that they confronted Jesus about the message itself. My guess is that they were listening to the message and they're trying to figure out what's wrong with it. And they really couldn't put their finger on what exactly was wrong with it. And so rather than confronting Jesus about the message itself, they confronted him about his authority. As a matter of fact, look with me again there in Luke 20 verse 2. We find them confronting Jesus by saying, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? As we consider this interrogation, it's important for us to remember that the chief priests and the scribes of Israel, uh, these were the religious leaders who had the authority to teach there at the temple. They were the ones with the authority, or so they thought. And so when Jesus showed up and started preaching without permission from the priests, well, they wanted to know, who, who gave you the permission? Who gave you the green light to come in here teaching this good news message? In this way, the religious leaders were attempting to silence our Savior by helping his audience to understand that this guy's teaching without our permission. They're trying to communicate to the audience. This guy, he's telling you things that we're not approving of. He's not teaching from from, from the permission that we might have given him. No, we don't give him this permission. He has no authority here. Unfortunately for them, what they failed to realize is that they were, they were confronting their Christ. They're, they're confronting their Messiah. They were questioning the authority of the one who has all authority. All authority is given to Jesus Christ. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And he didn't need their permission to teach at his temple. In order to expose the foolishness of their attempted interrogation, the Lord Jesus responded with a question of his own. And in this way, he uses the Socratic method, uh, taking a question in order to teach them something. Notice with me again there in verse four, where Jesus responds then by asking the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Jesus, of course, is presenting them with this question about the authority of John the Baptist because he knew that any way they answered it, they were going to find themselves on the wrong side of history. In this way, he was exposing the unteachable hearts of those religious leaders. And to prove my point, let's take another look here at Luke's account. I want to pick up again at verse 5 where we learn that they reasoned among themselves. Now, this is not to suggest that they were being reasonable. No, they were reasoning amongst themselves, trying to figure out how to answer this question while avoiding the traps. And so they reason among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? Remember, John the Baptist confirmed that Jesus is the Christ. And so if they answer, well, his authority came from heaven, then Jesus is going to respond and say, well, didn't John who had his authority from heaven, confirmed that I'm the Messiah? Why don't you believe him then? So they didn't want to fall into that trap. 
In verse 6, they said, If we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you about what, by what authority I do these things. If you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer yours. But listen, the religious leaders here are struggling to answer the Lord's question. And the reason why is because either answer would prove them wrong. But rather than simply confessing that the reason for their confrontation of Christ Jesus was completely incorrect, instead they feigned in ignorance. They pretended like they didn't really know the answer. They feigned ignorance by pretending like they really couldn't come up with a, a valid answer either way. And in this way, they were simultaneously exposing themselves as unteachable men who were being intellectually dishonest. Yeah, they were intellectually dishonest. And it's sad to say that the world is filled with unteachable people who are following in the same footsteps because they're unwilling to think critically about their own point of view. One reason why is because they're unwilling to consider the possibility that they might be wrong. You know, some people just can't imagine that they might be wrong about something. It's why so many people stay completely grounded within a false religious system. I've talked to people from all kinds of religious faiths and have seen that. I've seen it in their own eyes. I've seen it in their own rationality. They, they know it can't be defended. They know it can't be you know, uh, supported with, with rational arguments, and yet they stay, they remain. Why? Because they don't want to be wrong. What these people fail to realize is that the unteachable person tends to become intellectually dishonest. And listen, it doesn't take long for those who are intellectually dishonest to begin engaging in what we call confirmation bias, which leads people to search for and interpret and retain information that only lines up with their preconceived notions and beliefs. Yeah, people want to put, place themselves within what we would call an echo chamber where they only surround themselves with the people who are telling them exactly what they already believe. They engage in confirmation bias by only spending time with the people who go, oh yeah, you're right. They only listen to the YouTube preachers who, who tell them exactly what they want to hear, the things that they've already agreed with or, or have embraced. I'm here to tell you that's not always the healthiest approach. I love to listen to people that say the same thing that I'm saying, but it won't stretch me, it won't challenge me, it won't make me think through other issues. And yet how easy is it for us to become those unteachable people who are only willing to listen to the people who already tell them what they've already embraced? If this sounds like your struggle, then I encourage you to remember what King Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 12. It's there where he declares, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Think about that for a moment. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Listen, it's easy for us to believe that we're always right about everything. Trust me when I tell you that I always think that I'm always right about every single thing. If I didn't think I was right, I wouldn't hold the point of view. Why would I hold the point of view that I thought was wrong? But does that mean that every point of view that I hold is right? Nope. The fact is we can all be deceived into believing something that isn't true and it's really easy to go, but yeah, but God told me. Did he? You sure? The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, which is why we need counselors. Intellectually honest people who know the word of God who, and, and who can 
speak to our beliefs. That being the case, it's crucial for Christians to remain intellectually humble. If you find yourself thinking that, well, I'm always right about everything and I, can, I just can't be challenged. Careful, because that's a, a prideful point of view that will always lead us to the path of being unteachable. We need to be intellectually humble, recognizing that we could be wrong about some of the things that we've believed in so that we might remain teachable. And with this as the goal, we must remember that the teachable person is willing to heed the counsel of those who are intellectually honest and biblically accurate. Because the Lord just might be using those people to expose the delusional thinking of intellectual deception. Sadly, the unteachable person who is intellectually deceptive would rather engage in deception in order to avoid correction. And as a result, unteachable people are typically uh, divisive people and they become instinctively divisive as they begin to reject those who might challenge them. And with this as the focus, let's turn our attention back to the account that we find here in Luke chapter 20. If you will, let's pick up our study beginning at verse 9. Here we learn that he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant and they beat him also, treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Here in these verses, we find Christ Jesus. He's turning his attention back to those who were attentively listening to the lessons of the Lord as he taught there in the temple. And as we consider the point of this parable, there should be no doubt that the Lord was actually reminding them about the way that their forefathers had rejected the Old Testament prophets. You know, the, the God the Father would send the prophets to go and warn the children of Israel, and the children of Israel would then beat them and, and kill them and cast them out. And it's here in this parable that Jesus is reminding of them of this fact. Not only that, but he's presenting them with a parabolic prophecy about this day when the religious leaders of Israel there would then cast the Son of God out of the vineyard and then kill him, which we know was actually accomplished there on the cross. And while all of these things are true, those who heard this lesson struggled to receive the teaching. As a matter of fact, look again there in the middle of verse 16 where Luke tells us that when they heard it, they said, certainly not. They heard the parable, but they couldn't accept it. And as we consider this response to this prophetic parable that Jesus was presenting, we can see that the people who were there at the temple, they had a hard time receiving this teaching. And, and while it's true that they protested this parable because they couldn't imagine their own religious leaders killing the Son of God, well, it's also true that they were struggling to receive this teaching because uh, they believed their opinions more than they believed the Bible. To make my case, let's pick up our study beginning there at verse 17. Here we learn that he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus, he's challenging the skepticism of those who had a hard time believing that their religious leaders would reject the Son of God. 
But what they were failing to remember was that a, a simple study of Israel's history would have quickly revealed to them that the religious leaders of Israel were notorious for persecuting the prophets of God. And, and not only were they notorious for persecuting the prophets who were sent to them, but there, they, they, there were also you know, several prophecies in the Old Testament that actually pointed to the day when the religious leaders of Israel would reject their Messiah, even killing him. This was precisely the point that the Lord Jesus was making when he reminded them about the 118th Psalm, which reads this, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the prophecy from Psalm 118 that Jesus here quoted and said, hey, don't you remember what's written here? For the sake of clarity, it'll it'll help you to know that this prophecy was actually based on a traditional story which pointed back to the days when King Solomon was building the first temple. As the story goes, the chief cornerstone of the temple was mistakenly rejected by the builders and then sent to the refuse pile. And so this is the stone which the builders rejected, and it was this stone that pointed to the way that the religious leaders of Israel would reject the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. But then the builders finally realized their mistake and they were forced to retrieve the stone so that they could complete the temple. And and according to Jesus, this is a prophetic picture of the way that Israel would then receive their savior after first rejecting him. And listen, this is, you know, Jesus is just referring to one prophecy here. There's actually many messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that point to the very same situation. For example, it's in the 22nd Psalm where we learn about the congregation of the wicked who would pierce the hands and the feet of our Savior. In Isaiah chapter 53, we learn that the wealthy people of Israel ordered the death of our Messiah. The prophet Zechariah also tells us about the day when the Israelites who are here at the time of the second coming, they'll look upon the one whom their forefathers pierced. Therefore, when Jesus described the way that the religious leaders there in Israel would reject him and and kill him, his teaching was supported by the scriptures. He wasn't presenting them with some obscure opinion that wasn't grounded in biblical truth. No, he's telling them exactly what the scriptures had already foretold. So why is it that they couldn't believe it? Why is it that they said, certainly not, this could never happen here. And not only did the people struggle to receive this lesson, but then the religious leaders who were there, they were offended at this parable. The, the, the leaders who should have known the Old Testament prophecies were completely offended that Jesus had said this about them. As a matter of fact, look with me here at Luke chapter 20. I want to draw your attention to verse 19. Here we learn that the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. That's right, the chief priests and the scribes, these religious leaders, they responded to the parable uh, that Jesus was teaching. And, and you know, this, this would have been a wonderful time for them to examine their own hearts in order to see if Jesus was actually teaching them the truth, but they didn't. They didn't. The reason why was because they were unteachable leaders who were, you know, uh, were unwilling to learn this lesson from the Lord. They were unwilling to consider that those prophecies might have been pointing to them. And instead of learning the lesson that the Lord was teaching, they immediately started scheming against our Savior. And the reason why was because they were offended. They were offended by the parable that he was presenting to the people because they knew it was about them. And so what did they do? They fulfilled the parable. (laughs) That's what they did. As they prepared to crucify Christ Jesus, they were blinded to the fact that they were actually fulfilling the very parable that had offended them. In light of their response, it's important for us to understand that unteachable people are instinctively divisive when they hear something that offends them. Rather than stopping and just going, this hurts, but is it true? No. Unteachable people can't do that. Instead, they're instinctively divisive as they attempt to divide from those who offended them. 
Just to be clear, I should point out that our instincts are natural tendencies. And remember, there's a way that seems right to men, but it's the way of death. But you better believe that we have instincts, natural tendencies that drive many of our decisions, and those instincts are oftentimes completely wrong. And when it comes to unteachable people, well, the natural instinct of unteachable people is to immediately engage in divisive decisions which will silence the voices of those who are teaching those things they don't want to hear. And it's sad to say that there are many unteachable people in the church today who are quick to cause division the minute they hear someone offending them with a point of view that they don't like. It happens all the time. I I was just talking with a pastor friend of mine who's dealing with this at, at his church. Someone in his church came to him and said, hey, you know, I need to tell you about this other person over here who's doing this other thing. My pastor buddy said, hold on a second. Have you gone to them? Have you talked to them yet? Well, no, they're not going to receive it. You're talking to the wrong person. Go talk to the person that, that you're talking about. Don't talk to me about them. Talk to them about them. And then if they don't receive it, then we can go through the Matthew 18 process. Well, this individual who wanted to gossip about another individual decided that, well, it's time for him to tell the whole church about what a bad pastor this this pastor was. And and now, you know, the guy's leaving the church because, well, this this pastor has offended me. The the question is this, was the pastor right in the counsel that he gave? And the answer is yes, Matthew chapter 18 makes it very clear. But rather than being teachable and going, oh, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't be talking to you and spreading rumors. I should go talk to that. Rather than following the biblical instructions, no, they got their feelings hurt. They got offended. And then it's a matter of them to try to just tear up the church, dividing people into different camps. And it's completely unbiblical. And it's for this reason that I encourage you to remember the instructions that Paul presents in Romans chapter 16. It's there where he declares, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Christian, listen, when divisive people approach you with rumors about other people, if they come to you and want to tell you how horrible that teacher is or that leader is because of the offensive words that they said, you know, the the, the real question that you ought to be asking yourself is this, what was the offensive lesson that that, uh, hurt their feelings? Was it true? Is it in line with the doctrines of God's word? Because the reality is this, that the truth is going to offend us. The truth will hurt our feelings. But that doesn't mean the truth was wrong. It might just mean that we're unteachable. If your feelings are easily hurt by the truth, then chances are you're unteachable. And listen, if the offensive instructions are biblically true and this person then decides to start dividing the church because they got their feelings hurt, well, according to Paul, we should note the divisive person and avoid them. And the reason why is because the unteachable person who is instinctively divisive isn't serving the Lord Jesus Christ. No, instead, they're following their feelings. That's what Paul says, that those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, their gut feelings. They're serving their own opinion. And as they follow their feelings, they're foolishly creating unnecessary conflict within their Christian community, which is why Paul says, avoid them. Now, if this upsets you, then it's important to understand that unteachable people are not only intellectually deceptive and instinctively divisive, but then unteachable people are also irrationally defensive. 
To prove my point, let's turn our attention back to the account that we find here in Luke chapter 20. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 20, here we learn that they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now here in these verses, we find the religious leaders of Israel, they're sending these spies to go surveil our Savior. And we should notice there in verse 20 where Luke tells us that they were pretending to be righteous. They were pretending to be righteous. Or in other words, they were pretending to be sincere students who were there to learn from our Savior. They even praised him for being a teacher of truth uh, who who always teaches the, the way of God truthfully. Some believe flattery will get you everywhere. And so they were pretending to be students of our Savior. Sadly, these men didn't really realize here that the Lord saw right through this. They were pretending to be there to learn from the Lord, but the Lord saw right through them. And yet they tried to catch him saying something wrong because, well, they wanted to accuse him of something. But this has the goal, you know, we see here that they tried to entrap Jesus with a question about taxes. And, you know, if Jesus said that it's okay to pay taxes to Caesar, then they're going to be like, oh, you're all for Rome, huh? And if he said, no, it's not okay to pay taxes to Caesar, oh, well, then we're going to turn you into Caesar so that you can be punished. Now they're trying to catch him in a conflict and they're trying to accuse him before the Roman governor of breaking Roman law. And while they truly believe that they would be able to trick Jesus into answering a question that would incriminate him, it's also true that the Lord Jesus saw right through their deceptive scheme here. And to prove my point, let's pick up our study of Luke 20. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 23, here we learn, learn that he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Now, as we consider the way that the Lord Jesus answered this question, we must not fail to notice here that, you know, he was able to see right through their craftiness He knew that they were trying to entrap him. And just to be clear, the word craftiness found there in verse 23, well, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are cunning and treacherous and deceitful. The same word was also used of those who are embracing and proclaiming irrational ideas that stem from false wisdom. And with this definition in mind, we can see that the plan of those spurious spies was completely irrational. They, they thought they were doing something rational, but in reality, it was completely irrational because it was deceptive. We should notice uh, the question that Jesus presents there in verse 23. He asks, why do you test me? That, That word test was translated from a Greek word, which can also be rendered tempt. This is the same word that's used of the devil's temptation of Jesus Christ. And, and it's for this reason that John Darby Nelson renders the words of Jesus uh, in this way. Why do ye tempt me? Why are you tempting me? He asks. Why are you tempting me to say something sinful? Well, the simple answer to this question was based on the fact that the religious leaders of Israel, they were engaging in irrational measures in order to defend their own position. You see, they couldn't rationally prove Jesus wrong. And yet the religious leaders of Israel were determined to defend their position and their power against the increasing popularity of Jesus Christ. And so they were determined to defend their law-based lessons against the gospel message of grace. You see, they were still teaching that you have to keep the old, old covenant 
in order to be right with God. And Jesus comes along and says, it's by grace that you're saved. And he had the scriptures to support it. And they could have taken the time to consider the teachings of Jesus Christ so that they might investigate it and and be able to maybe disprove his doctrines with logical arguments. But they didn't because they couldn't. And as a result, we see that these religious leaders of Israel were unteachable people who were determined to defend their power and their position with the irrational approach of deceptive lies and false accusations. How irrational is it to think that you can actually outsmart God? Completely irrational. And with that being the case, it's sad to say that there are unteachable people, even in the church today, who are following in the same irrational footsteps. For example, you know there are false teachers who insist that their teachings can't be questioned because they're the Lord's anointed. I've literally heard preachers in the charismatic camp, when, when their teachings get questioned by an apologist, it's, well, don't question what I'm saying because I'm the Lord's anointed. If you're following a teacher who would make that kind of an argument that you can't really question what they're saying, you can't really ask them to prove their point because they're somehow the Lord's special teacher or something, back away slowly or, or quickly if you're able but they're nobody that should be listened to. Those who teach God's word should be able to defend what they're teaching with rational, logical, and biblical arguments. In similar fashion, there are those who appeal to ignorance and they do this by teaching something that they can't support and and rather than supporting it, they simply say, well, it's just impossible to, who can really know? It's just your opinion or my opinion. I mean, we can't really justify any of this and so I'm gonna continue to teach this thing. And so you present them with a biblical scripture that, that helps them to see that what they're saying is wrong and they go, well, that's just your opinion. That's not an argument. That's, that's an irrational point of view to say that I don't have to receive what the Bible says because I just so happen to have a different opinion. There's only one true interpretation of Scripture. It's given by the Holy Spirit. We don't get our opinions about what the Bible says. You either believe what it says or you don't. And yet there's people in the church who think that they can just have their opinion about the Bible. There are those who offer the irrational defense that sounds super spiritual and they insist, well, I just don't want to put God in a box. You know, you, you, you bring them a clear, you know, teaching from the scripture that, that, that kind of excludes something that they've embraced you know, like the hyper-charismatic movement that thinks that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and make you bark like a dog or roll around on the floor and cluck like a chicken and stuff like that. And you go, you know, this, this, there's, no, there's no Bible verse that backs this up. And there's actually some Bible verses over here that seem to suggest that you're doing it wrong. And that's not the Holy Spirit. And they go, well, I just don't want to put God in a box here. Well, didn't God put himself in his own box by giving us the word of God? God has defined who he is and how he operates with the scriptures. So yeah, I don't want to put God in my own man-made box. But should we reject what the Bible clearly teaches? Because we'd like God to be more than that? All of these arguments and and, and all of these measures are, are only people trying to shut down the debate because they don't really have a rational defense for their position and they aren't willing to learn anything new or different. Christian, listen, if you find yourself quick to defend your position with these sorts of irrational arguments, then the chances are you've become an unteachable believer. And if this is true of you, then I encourage you to remember something that King Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 12. It's Proverbs 12 where Solomon declares this. He says, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge. I love that. 
If you love instruction, then you love knowledge. You love hearing anything from anybody so that you can con- you know, consider what they're saying and, and you know, see if, it, if it's true or not. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge. But then he says this, he who hates correction is stupid. I wouldn't say that. I think that's pretty harsh. That's what Solomon said. If you don't like receiving correction, then according to Solomon, you're stupid. Do you love instruction, even if it comes in the form of correction? Like when somebody corrects you, says, hey, here's what you're saying, here's what the Bible says, and so what you're saying is wrong because it doesn't line up with the Bible. Do you hate that? Because if so, I encourage you to memorize Proverbs 12, maybe even make Proverbs 12 one your life verse. Because it's sad to say that the church is filled with unteachable believers who are quick to defend an irrational position with illogical arguments, and they don't even recognize they're just being stupid. Do you come to church longing to learn from the word of God? Or are you here because you want to figure out what's wrong with this guy's Bible study? If the latter is true of you, then the chances are you've become an irrational individual who then is also intentionally dismissive of the truth. And with this as the focus, it's important to understand that unteachable people are not only intellectually deceptive, instinctively divisive, and irrationally defensive, but unteachable people are also intentionally dismissive. And to prove my point, let's turn our attention back to Luke chapter 20. If you would, let's pick up our study at verse 27. Here we learn that some of the sad Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him saying, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers and the first uh, took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife and he died childless. Then the third took her and in like manner, the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Now, in this story, I'm beginning to wonder, what's this woman doing to these guys? But, but that's, that's, a whole nother, that's a whole nother issue. But seriously, we find this group of Sadducees approaching the Lord with what we would call a loaded question. This is a loaded question about the resurrection. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the Sadducees were religious leaders in Israel who denied the physical resurrection of the body. They denied the immortality of the soul. They also denied the existence of angels. And as we consider their theological position, we can understand that having denied the existence of angels, the immortality of the soul, and the resurrection of, of, of the body, it's no wonder why they were sad, you see. But as we consider this question in light of their theological position, there should be no doubt that they were presenting Jesus with a loaded question, uh, that that they were certain. They were certain that this question would force him to confess that the resurrection is an untenable position. As if Jesus would hear this question and be like, oh yeah, great question, I don't know. There's no way to figure this one out. So they present him with this loaded question in order to not learn about the resurrection from Jesus, but dismiss it. You know, loaded questions are questions that are preloaded with a false or questionable presupposition. It's a question that includes a presumption that has yet to be proven. One of the most common examples of a loaded question that's typically presented on college campuses, it's presented in this way. Have you stopped beating your wife? It's a loaded question because it presupposes that the person has a wife and that he's also guilty of beating her. 
As we consider this common example of a loaded question, it's sad to say that many unteachable people, they use loaded questions in order to avoid learning about the thing that they're already rejecting. They've already rejected something, and so they dial this into a loaded question and try to present it in such a way that, well, it's just obvious that they're right. In the case of the Sadducees, they didn't really want to learn the Lord's point of view regarding the resurrection. No, they were using this question to try to dismiss the resurrection. Rather than approaching him as students who were ready to learn, they instead decided to present him with a loaded question, which was preloaded with this presupposition that those who believe in the resurrection must also believe in the continuation of earthly marriages. And if you believe in the continuation of earthly marriages in heaven, well, then how does a situation like this work out? They were expecting Jesus to simply raise the white flag and surrender, but it's not what he did. Instead, Jesus easily disproved their unbiblical position. As a matter of fact, look with me again here at Luke chapter 20. We'll pick up at verse 34. Here we learn that Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Now here in these verses, we find Christ Jesus. He's helping the Sadducees to understand that their question was uh, loaded with a presupposition and therefore entirely irrational. You see, according to the Lord, the believers who were married here in this world won't be married in the resurrection. And the reason why is because there is no marriage in the resurrection. Sorry to break the hearts of our Mormon friends, but there is no marriage in the resurrection. Now I hear what sounds to be a sigh of relief coming from many wives here today, but listen, (laughs) I recognize that Brenda and I will not be married in the resurrection. I just hope that we have rooms next door to each other in the mansion. So that would be nice. But Jesus here is dealing with this unbiblical position regarding the existence or, or the, the resurrection. And not only that, but he's dealing with the, uh, the existence of angels. Remember, they rejected the belief in angels. And, and he's also dealing with the immortality of the soul. In a single statement, the Lord assures the Sadducees that the believers who rise up from the grave will live forever because we receive bodies. And in this way, we become equal to the angels in the fact that we will continue to live forever. So yeah, in this basic position, Jesus just completely you know, dismantles their whole system of theology. And we should also notice that Jesus defends the resurrection by appealing to the passage that we find in Exodus chapter 3. There God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Here in these verses, we find the great I am, Yahweh, referring to himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And from this, the Lord Jesus was presenting this as the proof of the resurrection by insisting that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were, in an earthly sense, dead when Moses said this, and yet they must have been alive because Yahweh is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. Because those who trust in him continue living unto him. Now this argument should have convinced the Sadducees that they had been all wrong about the resurrection. And while there were some leaders there, some scribes who agreed that this was a solid argument, well, the, sad, the Sadducees sadly remained unteachable. Let's consider how Luke puts it here in, in Luke chapter 20. Look with me there at verse 39. Here we learn that some of the scribes answered and said, teacher, You have spoken well, but after that, they dared not question him anymore. 
In these verses, we find some of the scribes agreeing that Jesus had presented a a solid argument. And that's not much to to say because the scribes, well, they already believed these things. Uh, So they were just acknowledging that it was a solid, it was a solid burn. You know, he, he, he had dismantled the Sadducees argument. But the Sadducees dared not question him anymore. Sadducees, they were on their heels with this argument and they realized that Jesus had taken them to task. But rather than coming to grips with the fact that they had embraced unbiblical beliefs, the Sadducees instead showed that they were truly unteachable people as they decided, let's just avoid this guy. Let's just stay away from Jesus because he's got solid arguments against us. In this way, they intentionally dismissed the argument that they heard so that they could continue proclaiming their unbiblical point of view. To prove my point, I just want to direct your attention to the argument that Paul presents in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here he declares, now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ Jesus have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. As we consider the point that Paul is making here, there should be no doubt that there were still Sadducees here uh, during this period of time who continued to present their unbiblical teachings regarding the resurrection. And it appears to me here that there were Christians there at the church in Corinth who were beginning to embrace this point of view. And so Paul was determined to dismantle the teachings of the unteachable Sadducees who were intentionally dismissing the reality of the resurrection. And yes, even after Jesus rose up from the grave. You see, when Jesus rose up from the grave, all of the Sadducees should have said, oh, we were wrong. But they didn't. They just continued to dismiss anything that was in conflict with their point of view. Why? Because they were unteachable. And it's sad to say that there are many in the church today who follow in the unteachable footsteps of the Sadducees. To prove my point, let's just consider the results of a BBC poll conducted back in 2017. This poll reveals that 31% of the Christians who who took this survey confessed that they don't believe in life after death. 31% of those who claim to be Christian said they don't believe in life after death. I would say, you're not a Christian. But they think they are. And yet they don't believe in life after death. One reason for this denial is, well, the same survey found that 31% of those who claim to be Christians, those who took this survey, said that they don't actually believe the Bible word for word. In other words, they read the Bible, and then they pick and choose the parts that they agree with. They, They don't believe everything in the Bible. And Who gets to decide which parts are true and which parts aren't? Shelby Spong and Marcus Borg? No. They do. They're the ones who pick and choose. And it's sad that the church is filled with people who don't actually believe in the essential doctrines that we find in God's word. Why? Because they don't really believe the Bible is God's word. It's for this reason that they're so quick to intentionally dismiss the sound doctrine of biblical instruction if it doesn't line up with what they've already decided. 
So they're unteachable. This reminds me of a situation that John records in John chapter 6. You know, Jesus had been teaching things that were hard to hear, offensive for the Israelites. And there were Israelites who had been following Jesus, and, and yet there, there were enough teachings that they had heard that they had been offended by that finally they decided, I can't follow this guy anymore. And it's here in John chapter 6 where we find John describing this situation, beginning here in John chapter 6, verses... 6 6, where we learn that many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, from this, we can see that there were many who had been following Jesus Christ, many who considered themselves disciples. Remember, the word disciple speaks of being a student, a pupil. And yet these students, these pupils, stopped following the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why is because, well, Jesus was teaching them things that they didn't like hearing. Jesus taught them things that that were hard to hear, offensive, and, and, and so they just couldn't hear it anymore, so they stopped following in contrast to this, the Apostle Peter confesses that it would be foolishness to walk away from the Lord. And the reason why is because Jesus is the one who proclaims the words of eternal life. And yes, yeah, sometimes those words offend us. The gospel message is an offense to those who are perishing. And yet, they are life for those who will humbly receive it. But that being the case, we would all do well to become those teachable believers who are the true students of our Savior so that we might continue to follow the one who has the words of eternal life. And with this as the goal, it's important for us to remember that unteachable people are intellectually deceptive. And as a result, they would rather engage in deception in order to avoid correction. Unteachable people are also instinctively divisive as they cause divisions after being offended. And all of this contrary to the doctrine that we find in the Bible. Unteachable people are, are, are also irrationally defensive as they appeal to fallacious arguments in order to defend their irrational point of view. And unteachable people are also intentionally dismissive because it's always easier to avoid those who can disprove our point of view than it is to consider the possibility that we might be wrong. Now, if any of this rings true for us, and it's my hope that we would all recognize the reasons for why we've become unteachable. There are many different reasons for why we might be unteachable, but listen, whatever the reason, it's good to know, it's good to recognize when we are becoming unteachable. And knowing that we can all struggle with being unteachable, it's my prayer that we would become those believers who learn to love the lessons of the Lord even when they hurt. I can tell you right now that before I came to Christ Jesus, I had a lot of opinions, a lot of beliefs that I learned were wrong after coming to faith in Jesus Christ. For example, you know, before I came to Christ, I was pro-choice. I had been duped into believing that women should have the right to choose to terminate the life of the child growing within their womb. Yeah, I had been duped into believing this. And then I came to Christ and was born again and started reading the scriptures and started considering different arguments. And I praise the Lord that I was teachable because the Lord helped me to see that the pro-choice position is wrong. And that we should be pro-life because it's at the moment of fertilization that there is new DNA and new life within the womb. But we have to be teachable 
to begin to change our points of views that we held before coming to Christ. You know, before I came to Christ, I, I thought that it's okay to get drunk. It's okay to go party. It's okay to do these things. It's okay, okay to, you know, chase women and all these sorts of things. Like I had a lot of opinions that turned out to be really wrong. But I had to humble myself and, and become teachable so that I could begin to develop beliefs that were in line with the truth of God's word. And that's my challenge to all of us is to realize that we're still works in progress. And we still have beliefs that we're holding on to that don't line up with the scriptures. And when you come across those, those verses or when a Christian comes along and challenges you, don't get offended. Don't get your feelings hurt. Be teachable. Embrace the truth of God's word so that you can embrace the truth. I'll remind you in closing, the word disciple means student. Therefore, the, the, the disciples of Christ are to be the students of our Savior. And so I encourage every Christian, let's become those humble students of our Savior. And as we become the humble students of our Savior, we're able to overcome the carnal attitudes that could cause us to become unteachable. Let's pray.